We turn now to the reading and the hearing of God's Word. Just in the last 30 to 45 seconds, as I've been shuffling things about up here and pivoting to the sermon, I've given you plenty of time to find the book of the prophet Habakkuk, nestled there among the minor prophets. But theirs was a major message, make no mistake. We've been making our way lately through 2 Samuel 22. And last Sunday, we reached the glorious culmination of that long, wonderful poem of praise and deliverance. What did we see last week? Verse 47 in that poem. David wrote, The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, And exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation. The end of that poem, David praised God as a God of life and salvation. And yes, vengeance as well as steadfastness. David gave praise to God. And then remember, if you back up just a few verses in that same poem... 2 Samuel 22, what did we learn? We learned, among other things, that David was equipped and enabled by God to serve and stand and fight for God. David wrote, this God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. That's the kind of thing we've been seeing lately in 2 Samuel 22. Well, it was in the course of one of our Sunday morning sermon discussions lately, as we've been reflecting upon those themes, that we turned our attention just briefly to the end of the book of the prophet Habakkuk. That came up in one of our sermon discussions a few weeks back. Well, this morning I thought we'd take that passage that came up just briefly and move it front and center and give it its due. It just so happens to be the very last passage in the book of Habakkuk. So listen now to the prophet Habakkuk 3, beginning at verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your servants through whom that word has come to us, including Habakkuk. And we thank you for his candor with you, his honesty, the honesty with which he confessed his 
struggles and confusion to you, and even more, we thank you for the mercy with which you dealt with him. The truth that you spoke to him, for now you speak that same truth to us. We pray that you'd bless us this morning, give us ears to hear it, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. I want you to imagine this scenario. Imagine that you sit down at the dining room table where there is a lavish spread for you to enjoy with family and friends. And naturally, before the meal begins, you want to give thanks to God. You want to rejoice in God. You want to bow your heads in prayer. But then imagine, right before you pray, somebody walks in and takes one of the dishes away. One of your favorites. So now there's a little less on the table, but it's still a lavish spread, still a bountiful feast. And you still want to say so in prayer. You want to give thanks to God. You want to rejoice in God, the provider. But then it happens again. Another dish taken away. And then it happens again. And again. One by one, the dishes are being removed from the table. With every one of them that's taken away, the feast is looking less bountiful. The lavish spread isn't quite so lavish. After a while, it's hardly a spread Anymore, Can you even call it a spread if you're down to just two or three dishes that fit between the candlesticks in the center? Is that a spread? Or is that a sampler? Until sure enough, somebody comes in and takes the last dish away. So now the table's empty. And they even, even blow out the candles before they leave so that a few last wisps of smoke make their way mournfully into the air. What do you pray now? When the table was full, you had all sorts of things that you wanted to say to God. To give thanks for what He'd given, more profoundly to rejoice in Him because of what he means to you, because of what he is for you. What do you pray now? Now that the table's empty. When they took the last dish away, did they take your joy away with it? Now, we can say we're very blessed. Here in Fairfax County, Virginia, USA, in the year 2022, most of us here and now, we've got to use our imagination just to contemplate what it would be like, what it would feel like to have nothing. I mean, in terms of earthly provision and comfort, to have nothing in the present and to have no realistic prospect that anything's going to be coming our way anytime soon. We're very blessed here. 
But even if we've got to use our imagination to contemplate a, a dramatic scenario like that, still we all know what it's like and what it feels like to face some kind of lack, some kind of loss, some kind of trial. And in that moment, to face the test, how am I going to handle this? What do I have within me now to say to God? What do I have in me now as a feeling toward God? For that matter, what could I possibly say to other people who might be listening and watching? Watching how I handle this. Can I still rejoice? And can I still say so in prayer? When it comes to that test... That challenge, the end of the book of the prophet Habakkuk, is right on point. A remarkable passage to be sure. There's a lot for us to learn here, especially when you appreciate what's led to it over the course of three chapters. As I said before, maybe it's classified amongst the minor prophets, but... This is a major message here in the book of Habakkuk. A bit of background. I I realize it is rather abrupt to drop down into the last three verses of any Bible book. Habakkuk was one of several prophets who served around the time of the fall of the kingdom of Judah at the hands of the Babylonians. That was around the year 600 B.C. The armies of Babylon descended upon Judah, the southern kingdom, right, of the two kingdoms into which the people of God had been divided. The kingdom of Judah was all that was left. The armies of Babylon descended upon Judah around 600 B.C. Why? Because God was chastising his people for their own wickedness and corruption. That is when Habakkuk lived and served as a prophet. And remember, bear in mind, the role of the prophet in Israel. It was fundamentally to speak forth the word of God to the people of God. The prophet served, we might say, as a conduit of a divine message to God's people. But that does not mean that the prophets weren't personally engaged in what they were doing as if it were a merely mechanical business, the way they received a word from God and then turned around and delivered it. Every once in a while you get a glimpse in the writings of these prophets of just how personal this business was, of just how human they were, how affected, how deeply affected they were by what was going on around them and And what the message was that God gave them to deliver. They were flesh and blood. And and we get glimpses of that in some of their writings. Jeremiah certainly comes to mind. Classic example, right? The prophet Jeremiah, who was often troubled, baffled, perplexed, and was willing to cry out to God Because of it, no wonder Jeremiah is labeled the weeping prophet. He felt deeply, and it comes through. So Jeremiah was one of them, while Habakkuk was another. 
Another good example of a prophet who was perplexed by the Lord's doings, or at least he was that at the beginning of his book. Thankfully, he wasn't by the end, but at the beginning of the book, he was. The the book as a whole, it's a kind of dialogue that goes on back and forth between Habakkuk and God. And Habakkuk goes first in the dialogue. He speaks first. In particular, Habakkuk speaks to God about the state of affairs, what things were like as Habakkuk looks around and surveys the scene, as Habakkuk looks around at the people of God, his own people, and what they were like in those days. So chapter 1, verse 2. Just listen if you want. Chapter 1, verse 2, right out of the gate. Habakkuk says, O Lord... How long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. The law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. That's what Habakkuk saw when he looked around him at the holy people of God. That's the way things were. Violence, iniquity, wrongdoing, destruction, strife, contention, lawlessness, injustice, wickedness is winning, and all of that is just three verses. So, Habakkuk goes first with that pained and perplexed question. And God answers him. Still in chapter 1, now at verse 5. What does God say back to him? God says, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. And by the way, that's another reference to the Babylonians. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. So it's quite a dialogue that's underway here. Habakkuk went first and said, Lord, there's rampant wickedness among your people. It looks like you're not doing anything. What are you going to do about it? I'm baffled. The Lord replies, in effect, Habakkuk, I know that there's rampant wickedness among my people. I'll tell you what I'm going to do about it. I'm going to bring the Babylonians. They are going to be, to borrow language from elsewhere in the Bible, they're going to be the rod of my anger. I'm going to bring the armies of Babylon to chastise my people. To which Habakkuk then replies, we won't keep reading, we can summarize at this point, but at that point Habakkuk replies and says, in effect, Lord, now I'm really baffled. 
Lord, that cure sounds worse than the disease. Lord, I ask you to step in and deal with the wickedness, and your response is to tell me that you're going to step in with the Babylonians, who are more wicked than anything I'm seeing now among your people. The armies of Babylon, they are well and widely known as the epitome of cruelty and injustice. So at first, Habakkuk has not been helped by the answer, by the explanation that God gives. And the dialogue goes on. Habakkuk longs for a response. The Lord gives him one. The Lord says, in effect, Habakkuk, trust me. I know what I'm doing. I know very well, I know better than you, that the Babylonians are cruel And before all is said and done, I'm going to deal justly with them too. Right now, Habakkuk, trust me. And by God's grace, Habakkuk gets to that point. So that by the end of the book, he's not baffled anymore. It's not to say that God's ways weren't at all inscrutable anymore, but still Habakkuk's heard enough to be reminded that God reigns, that he reigns wisely and justly and always lovingly toward his people. He hasn't left them. He hasn't forsaken them. He never will. So over the course of three chapters, it's quite a dialogue. It's quite a personal journey that Habakkuk himself goes on before he reaches that glorious conclusion at the end of chapter 3, at the end of the book. And that brings us to the very end of the book. The prophet who started out so troubled, so bewildered, by the end of the book, he's at peace. He can rest in the thought that God knows what he's doing, that God does not and will not and cannot forsake his people. And what you see at the very end of the book, after going through all of that, is that Habakkuk takes that very personally. It isn't just a truth for the people as a whole. It isn't just a truth that's a lens through which Habakkuk looks at events and developments outside of him. It's also a truth that he takes personally. It becomes the lens through which he views his own life and experiences, not just now but in the days to come. So take a look again. Chapter 3, verse 17. Listen as Habakkuk, now at peace, plants his flag and says, here I stand. Verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. So that's the... The scenario that he's envisioning. It's as if he's closing his own eyes and imagining it. Though the things of life itself should be taken away, in some cases maybe by the Babylonians themselves. You can only imagine what marauding armies like that one left in their wake. In any case, this is not a litany of minor misfortunes and bothersome inconveniences. These things are a matter of life and death. Fields, flocks, herds. That's life and death. Verse 18. 
Habakkuk says, yet even then, even then I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Notice the way the names and titles of God appear in print in your Bible there in those verses 18 and 19. You might even notice a peculiar switch there. In verse 18, it's Lord, probably printed all caps in your Bible, and then you've got God printed normally, verse 18. But then in verse 19, it's the reverse. It's God that it's in all caps, and then you've got Lord printed normally. Whenever you've got either one of them, Lord or God, in all caps, you know that's a signal that what we've got in the Hebrew text is the covenant name of God, Yahweh. So listen now to verses 18 and 19 with that in mind. Yet I will rejoice in Yahweh. Right? Naming him by that sweet name. I will rejoice in Yahweh. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Yahweh, the Lord, is my strength. Habakkuk was a man who knew God. He knew him by many names. And Habakkuk's confession is, even if all of the things of earthly life are taken away, yet I will rejoice in Yahweh, who is God, who is Lord I will rejoice in him. So that's where he ends up by the end of the book. What accounts for that? How, this, how did this extraordinary beginning and end come about? This, this remarkable transformation from before and after. What can account for Habakkuk's determination to express that joy? Well, in our verses here are the answers. In our verses here are reasons for rejoicing. We're going to notice five of them, relatively briefly each one. Five reasons for rejoicing that explain why Habakkuk can so confidently plant his joy flag the way he does at the end of the book. The first of them is covenant And really, this is the main thing. Everything else flows from this one. Habakkuk knew God, the God of the universe, as his covenant God. And he refers to him by that covenant name, Yahweh. In other words, Habakkuk didn't just know that there is a God. No, he was a faithful Israelite, and so he knew the true God is the one who had made Israel his own. In a way that he hadn't made any other nation on earth, his own. The true God had chosen Israel. He had bound himself to Israel. And the very name Yahweh was part of that extraordinary revelation, first to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, repeated again and again. The very name Yahweh carried with it that meaning that that God, the God who is, who is the great I Am, bound himself to this people so that this people of all the peoples on the earth knew him by that name and called him that in prayer and praise. And as I was saying before, Habakkuk took that personally. It wasn't just that God had bound himself to a great people, though he had by making them great. 
It's also that Habakkuk was numbered among that people so that he could take it personally. It's as if the Lord had said to Habakkuk, when the fig tree does not blossom, when there's no fruit on the vines, when any of that happens, Habakkuk, I will be with you. I will still have you and you will still have me. For I'm Yahweh. Habakkuk, I'm Yahweh, your God. And you're my servant, you belong to me. To borrow words from John, no one will snatch you out of my hand. To borrow words from Romans, nothing will be able to separate you from my love. To borrow words from Hebrews, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So it truly was rejoicing in the Lord. And not just in the earthly blessings that the Lord gives, but in the Lord himself. Because Habakkuk belonged to him. He was bound to him. With cords that couldn't be broken. Covenant, that's the first. Here's the second, salvation. Salvation, look at verse 18. Again, Habakkuk says, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. My salvation. Not just our salvation as a people, as a nation, but my salvation. Habakkuk was resolved that he would rejoice in God as the one who rescued him. And he must have had a sense, like every faithful Israelite would have had a sense, of what he had been rescued from. He'd have had a sense of that because of the very practice of Israel's sacrificial system. That would have reminded him of that over and over again. Those sacrifices for sin, daily, weekly, yearly, they would have reminded Habakkuk that God is holy, and so God hates sin, and God is just, and so God must punish sin. And so if we're a redeemed people, it must be that above all, God has redeemed us from that from the judgment that our sin deserves. Habakkuk and his fellow earthly Israelites, his fellow faithful Israelites, they could see beyond the earthly horizon. This is a man who knows that what he's been saved from isn't mere earthly misfortunes and nothing more. It's deeper than that. He knows that he's been saved from the very judgment of God. And then the same thing is true of what he had been saved to. What now was happily in store for him, the positive side of his salvation. Again, he could see beyond the earthly horizon. Not only had Habakkuk come to know God in this age, but he must have had a sense deep down, shadowy though it may have been, he must have had a sense deep down that he also had the hope of the age to come. Think of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. If in this life only Habakkuk had hope, he was of all people most to be pitied. So when Habakkuk says, I will take joy in the God of my salvation, he's not thinking, I'll take joy in him because he'll give me figs next year. And the fields will yield next year and we'll have the flocks back and all the rest. Maybe he will. Maybe God will restore us in that earthly way, but maybe he won't. In this life, next year may be worse than this one. And that's why faith, including Habakkuk's faith, believes in and longs for another life beyond this one. We have not been saved 
to an eternity of being comforted in the midst of misery and loss. In this life, we have that comfort because that's what this life is like. But there's got to be a life to come when the misery and the loss and the famine end. Habakkuk knew it. He might have known it dimly, but he knew it. That ultimately what he'd been saved to, what he'd been saved for, was an eternity of fellowship with God and with God's glorified people standing and living and thriving on God's glorified earth. Think about Hebrews 11. These all died in faith, it says, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, as it is they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. In Hebrews 11, that's affirmed about those ancient patriarchs in Genesis. But can we not say the same thing about Habakkuk, who believed? So covenant was first, salvation was second. Here's a third, sovereignty. Covenant salvation, here's a third, sovereignty. It's reflected in verse 19, the title for God in verse 19, the one that we've got in our English Bibles as Lord, the translation of the Hebrew word Adonai. Could be that you've sung praise songs that have that that title in it, Adonai. That's a word that means Lord or ruler or master. It's a title that reflects authority. And of course, in God's case, that's ruler with a capital R. He rules the universe, master of everything. He rightly bears that title, Adonai, in a way that none of the other so-called gods did or do. Think of all of the other gods of the nations, like the gods of the Assyrians and the Babylons and the rest of them. No doubt those people gave their gods titles that reflected authority. Even the word Baal means Lord and is meant in some ways to capture authority. But none of those gods, those so-called gods, really deserve to be called that. None of them was real. None of them had any real power. Yahweh and Yahweh alone ruled. And he still does. Israel could know that. Habakkuk knew that. So Habakkuk knew that if the fig tree didn't blossom, and if the fields didn't yield, Habakkuk knew that the Lord had done that too. It's not as if the Lord was going to step in and rescue his people from misfortunes that were beyond his purposes. No, even those misfortunes were in some mysterious way the reflection, the outgrowing of God's own purposes. And his purposes are always good. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away, the Lord restores, the Lord saves, all of those things because he is just that. Lord, worthy that we call him that. So sovereignty is our third. Here's our fourth. I mentioned there are five, two more. Just so happens that these last two are a chance to underline what we saw in 2 Samuel not too long ago. Because the fourth of them is strength. Strength. Look again at verse 19. Habakkuk says, 
Yahweh, Adonai, is my strength. And so that, too, was a reason for him to rejoice. This one who is ruler over all things. Habakkuk could say, he makes me strong. Without him, I'm not strong. Apart from his grace, no, I don't have the wherewithal to face all of this, to bear all of these burdens. But with him, by his grace, I do. The one who rules powerfully over the universe, his power is at work in me. As we noticed just a few weeks back, remember 2 Corinthians 12? What does Paul say when he's impressed again in a hard way with the reality of his own weakness? 2 Corinthians 12, he says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So strength, and then here's the fifth. This too an echo of something we saw not too long ago. Sure-footedness. Because here Habakkuk says the same thing that David said about himself. Back in 2 Samuel 22, as he was reflecting upon how the Lord had equipped and enabled him to handle some hard trials. Look at verse 19. Habakkuk says it about himself. God makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Remember, that's just what David said. And here it is again. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. The trials and losses of life, they would slow me down. They would bog me down. They would weigh me down in such a way that I can't find my footing. I'm stumbling with every step, falling down from the heights. But Yahweh, the God of my salvation, the ruler of all, he lifts me up. He enables me to be swift and steady and sure. And that, too, we can take personally, as we were considering a few weeks back. Yes, we're confused sometimes. Yes, the terrain of this life that we've got to navigate can be awfully tricky and treacherous sometimes. And yet still... The believer always has a basic sense of what to do, where to go, where to step, because he knows God, and he knows that it's always right to go to God and to walk in his ways. So, yeah, Habakkuk started out baffled, perplexed, even heartbroken. By the end, he's saying, I will rejoice. And there are five very good reasons why. Covenant. Salvation, sovereignty, strength, sure-footedness. And those same five reasons are ours. Covenant. God has bound himself to us as the church. And we who belong to that body can take that personally. God is mine and I'm his. He's not just the God of salvation, though he is. He's not just the God of our salvation. Though he is, he's the God of my salvation. Bound to me. And I to him. Covenant. Salvation. God, God has, rescued, has rescued me. And oh, the thought of what he rescued me from. The thought of what he rescued me to. And sovereignty. He reigns. He reigns over me. He reigns over me for good. 
Even when, one by one, the dishes on the table are taken away and all that I'm left with is an empty table and puffs of smoke rising from blown-out candles. He's brought that to pass. And he's brought it to pass for my good. Covenant, salvation, sovereignty, strength. Oh, it takes strength in a moment like that. It takes strength to say, I will rejoice. And left to ourselves, that's a strength we don't have. And he doesn't leave us to ourselves. When I am weak, then I am strong. And sure-footedness. I know it doesn't always feel that way. But thanks to God's grace and Christ and the revelation of his will that he's given us in the word, we're able to chart our way through this life. We'll get home. We'll get home. Habakkuk's reasons for rejoicing are ours. They're yours, Christian. They're mine. A few final thoughts, and we'll wrap up with this. Just a few points of application, a few implications of what we've seen here. One is this. Christian, faithful believers suffer losses. Losses that are painful and perplexing. The experience of great personal loss and trial is not a sign that you're accursed of God. So many believers go around so profoundly discouraged because they think that's the case. They think, it must be that God has cast me off. That's the only way to make sense of what's happened to me now. Learn from Habakkuk that that's not the case. Here's a faithful prophet who could anticipate losing the things of life itself and who knew that even then God would be his and he would be God's. God would be the God of his blessedness. And then this, too, a a second challenge. How do you respond to losses and lack and trial? Habakkuk was envisioning a scenario, envisioning a scenario of having nothing of the things of life. But what he says applies to us today in a host of circumstances. There There are believers who literally face that, perhaps in the midst of some natural disaster. They They lose everything. It's also possible to suffer some great loss that makes it feel like you've lost everything, even if your earthly possessions remain intact. The question is, what do you say then? But then it's not just those great, devastating, life-changing losses. It's also the little things that test us and expose us. If you can't handle losing a parking space, you probably won't be able to handle well losing something far greater. So practice, even in the little things. Practice. Learn from Habakkuk in all things to say, covenant, the Lord's mine and I'm his. And salvation, he rescued me from and for. And sovereignty, he's ruling all things for my good. And strength, He makes me strong. He's going to enable me to face this ensure-footedness. He's guiding my steps. Learn to rejoice in him because all those things are true of you. And then one more, this 
noticing the very end. What's the very last thing in verse 19? One of those statements that we hardly notice as we turn the page to the next book. It says, to the choir master with stringed instruments. We can admit, scholars admit, it's not easy to know exactly what some of these musical terms mean in Old Testament poetry. But this much is clear. This confession at the end of Habakkuk, everything we've seen here, his resolution to rejoice and all the reasons for it, this is rightly the stuff of the church's song. This is the kind of confession that ought to flow from our souls in song as it did from the heart of Habakkuk. This kind of joy, this is rightly the melodic line of our lives and of our life together as a congregation. So may our lives resound with this melody, I will rejoice in the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you again for this remarkable resolution, a resolution to rejoice, even as Habakkuk contemplated what the future might hold we confess today it makes us tremble even to contemplate that kind of loss and earthly futility and hopelessness. Father, would you impress upon us again these reasons to rejoice, for they are our reasons too, that we might believe and that we might even testify in song for this was for the choir master and we are the choir now and we pray these things in Jesus name Amen